Churches are incongruous places. I'm not talking about the building. I'm talking about the people who gather and call themselves the Church of God. On the one hand, the people gathered are rarely impressive or powerful by world standards. On the other, the Bible describes the church as the most important community in the world. It's a light in a dark world, a city on a hill inside of all. I've talked to many people over the years who are dissatisfied one way or the other with their experience of church. Some of these complaints are well and truly justified when there's been issues of unrepentant sin in the church or cover-up of wrongdoing, there's absolutely no place for turning a blind eye to sin in God's holy church, as we'll come to. But often the dissatisfaction is about far less critical issues. The quality of the worship, that's always a good one. The style of preaching, it's too long, too short, too boring. The size of the church, too many people, too few people. The demographics of the church. There's no one my age, no one like me. I'm not saying that these are never significant, but I do wonder if we've lost our vision of what the church is, and so make some issues more important than maybe they need to be, and we've ignored other parts of being God's church that are crucial. My prayer in this talk is that we might recapture God's vision for his church. It's exciting to have supporters and graduates of the EU ministry join us online for this session. A recap just to bring you up to speed. This year at annual conference, we're looking at the kingdom of God. In talk two, we saw how Jesus, the king in God's kingdom, established that kingdom through his death and resurrection and ascension. But as you can see in the diagram on page 26, God's kingdom won't arrive in its fullness until Jesus returns and destroys the final enemies of sin and death. So the church now lives in the overlap of two ages, the old age of the reign of sin and death and the new age where Jesus reigns. So what is the church in this now but not yet of the kingdom? The church is an outpost of the future. Not as time travellers, sorry to disappoint the uh, sci-fi fans, but we live out now the vision and values of the coming kingdom that will arrive when Jesus returns. We do it as those who, by faith, are united to Jesus now, who've died to the old ways with him and now live in the new life of the Spirit, and who will inherit the kingdom in all its fullness when he returns. We're a picture of what the future will be. Now, I don't mean that the future will be an endless church service. Thank you, Lord, you might be saying. We're an outpost of the future in terms of the way we live, the way we relate to each other, the way we relate to God and to his creation. The theological word for this is eschatological. Eschatology is all about the end, the purposes and goals towards which God is taking his creation. You can see it there in the box. The church is an eschatological outpost of Jesus' disciples living out the vision and values of his coming kingdom in the power of his spirit. 
This is a picture given to us by three different New Testament authors. In Hebrews 11, Israel's patriarchs are held up as examples of those who were to consider themselves aliens and strangers on earth. They were looking for a heavenly, better country, we're told. Peter uses similar language in 1 Peter chapter 2, where he calls Christians foreigners and exiles, living in this age, but looking towards the age to come. And Paul in Philippians 1 calls us citizens of heaven. We're an outpost of that future kingdom, and we live as citizens of that reality. So what does it look like to live out the vision and values of Jesus' coming kingdom? I've identified five characteristics drawn from Jesus' teaching and practice and then echoed in the rest of the New Testament. This gives us a picture of what our life together as Jesus' church should look like now. First, on page 27, what I've called kingdom inclusion. Jesus repeatedly transgressed the boundaries acceptable to his culture and day. He was a radical inclusionist. So in Luke chapter 5, Jesus eats at the house of Levi, the tax collector. But the religious leaders complained about Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners. Jesus' response was, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. It wasn't the only time Jesus transgressed acceptable boundaries. Jesus was known for the table fellowship he shared with those who were cast out of Jewish society. He restored those who were cut off because of their work, like Levi. He restored those who were cut off because of their sinful past, like the woman who anoints him with perfume in Luke 7. He restored those who were cut off because of sickness, like the man he healed of a skin disease in Matthew 8. Jesus was showing that these people too have a place at the table in the kingdom of God. And even more provocative was Jesus' inclusion of non-Jews into God's kingdom people. When a Roman centurion came to Jesus and asked him to just say the word so that his servant would be healed, Jesus was astounded at the level of faith that this Gentile had in him. And Jesus made this shocking announcement from Matthew chapter 8, verses 11 to 12. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and take their place in the feast with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Many Jews will miss out on the kingdom of God because they refuse to acknowledge Jesus as the king in the kingdom for which they were waiting. But Gentiles who had that faith would be included. Time and time again, Jesus overturned the cultural barriers of his day. Women were esteemed and respected by Jesus. After his resurrection, it was to his female disciples that Jesus first appeared in Matthew 28 and John 20. And it was to them that Jesus entrusted the message that he'd been raised from the dead. Now, in the culture of the day, that was problematic since a woman's testimony was not regarded as sound. Yet that didn't stop Jesus from commissioning his female disciples to be the first to share the news of his resurrection. To children too, 
Jesus gave an uncommon welcome. In Mark 10, we read that the disciples told off those who were bringing their children to Jesus. When Jesus saw this, Mark tells us, he was indignant. He was really unhappy about it. Jesus said to them, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. These are all examples of the radical inclusion that characterises God's kingdom. Age, gender, race, social standing, intellectual capacity, sick or well, able or disabled, none of it matters when it comes to entry into God's kingdom. Look at how Paul puts it in Galatians 3, verses 28 and 29. There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. The social, religious, racial divisions are irrelevant when it comes to membership in the kingdom of God. If you belong to Jesus through faith, then you are an heir, an inheritor of God's promises to you in Jesus. We're all one together through faith in him. It's hard for us to grasp how radical this kingdom inclusion was in the first century. I recently read Christoph Cholkus' latest novel, Damascus, which is a no-holds-barred imaginative recreation of first century Christianity in its historical setting. It's a confronting, disturbing read in places, much like the ancient world was a confronting, disturbing place in many ways. But what Christos managed to do in the novel was show how Jesus' followers were bizarre, even offensive in the eyes of the surrounding world as they lived out this radical kingdom inclusion. Characters in his novel can barely contain their revulsion at seeing slaves and free persons welcome each other, even embrace in the Christian community. That's radical inclusion. What does that mean for us? The kingdom of God is not white. It's not black. The kingdom of God is not Western. It's not Eastern. The vision of the kingdom of God that we have in Revelation 7 is of a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people and language standing before the throne and in front of Jesus the Lamb. Your church, my church, the EU at Sydney Uni is an eschatological outpost of that international, multicultural, multilingual community. It's for the poor and the rich. It's for the sick and the well. It's for the homeless as well as the home alone, for the unstable as well as the stubborn. It's for you and for people who are nothing like you. What we have is our common need for Jesus, that we've put our trust in him, our king. And so we are now members of each other, because we share in the same spirit, united to the same king. It's a beautiful 
overturning of the exclusion and prejudice that we see all around us, that we see worryingly even in ourselves. The humanist project is to eradicate all prejudice and exclusion under our own steam. And as those who know what life should be like, Christians should care how people are treated in this world. Love for your neighbour demands it. But we know that sin dooms the humanist effort to never fully succeed. Rather, God has already done in Jesus what the world will never succeed in doing. In Jesus, we are all one. We're all heirs of the kingdom together. And so our calling as his kingdom people is to welcome one another in the same way that Jesus has welcomed each of us. What will it look like for you to express that welcome, that unity in your church, in your EU faculty, in your Bible study group? Showing that welcome is not beyond you because the spirit of Jesus the King lives in you. Maybe his spirit is prompting you now, through his word taught, to express in a particular way that radical kingdom inclusion, even this week. If so, tell someone about it. Seek their counsel, committed in prayer, and step forward in love. Let's move to the second characteristic on the next page kingdom reversal. It's been the dream of every revolution that the powerful would be overthrown and the oppressed would rise up. And one of Jesus' repeated catch cries was, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. On first hearing, that sounds very much like a revolutionary slogan. And in a way it was. It signalled a fundamental reversal that would characterise God's coming kingdom. But it was not a call for revolutionary overthrow. Jesus was not calling his disciples to tear down the first and install the last in their place. Rather, he was announcing what God himself would do when the kingdom arrived. It was God who would upend the scales, not Jesus' disciples. On the contrary, the disciples were to follow Jesus in loving their enemies, doing good to those who persecuted them. First, last, last, first was a promise from God, a word of comfort and hope to Jesus' disciples. Indeed, more than that, because the first shall be last and the last shall be first, because it was a promise from God, it was also a call to Jesus' disciples to humility and personal sacrifice, to embrace lastness in the sure knowledge that God would lift them up when his kingdom arrived. Let's explore this a bit more by looking at the passages I've listed there on page 28. There are at least three different settings where Jesus uses this phrase of kingdom reversal to explain what life is like in the kingdom of God. In Matthew 19, Jesus uses it as a commentary on a rich young man who wouldn't give up his wealth to follow Jesus. Jesus said to the young man, go sell your possessions and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. But the young man could not do it. Jesus says, many who are first will be last 
and many who are last will be first. In the next chapter, Jesus goes on to explain why the kingdom reversal takes place. He does it by telling a parable about a generous landowner. Or maybe you could call it the parable of the narky employees, or maybe of the lucky latecomers. But really, it's about the generous landowner. The landowner employed people to work in his vineyard. Some he employed at 6am, some he employed at 9am, some he employed at noon, some more he employed at 3pm, and finally at 5pm he employed some more. And then at 6pm, the working day is done, he calls them all in to receive their day's pay, but the landowner pays them all the same amount. Not fair, you cry. And that's exactly what the 6am crew in the parable cry out. But the landowner replied, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Didn't you agree with me on a denarius? Take what's yours and go. I want to give this last man the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do that with what is mine? Are you jealous because I'm generous? Then Jesus concludes, so the last will be first and the first last. That is, the reason why there is such a reversal in God's kingdom is because he wants to be generous to those who don't deserve it. And that's you and me. Jesus uses the phrase again to explain what greatness looks like in the kingdom. In Mark 9, the disciples are arguing about who among them is the greatest. One wonders what criteria they were using. Who's the most impressive? Who's the closest to Jesus? Who casts out more demons? It might seem ridiculous, but our proud hearts latch onto the craziest things to shore up our own view of ourselves. But Jesus says it's not like that in the kingdom. It's kingdom reversal. If anyone wants to be first, he says, they must be the very last and the servant of all. In Matthew 20, the same issue comes up again, and Jesus points to himself as the example of the reversal. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave, he says, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, it could be that you're so familiar with Jesus' words here that you're no longer struck by the outrageous reversal Jesus is putting forward. Slaves were not first. They were not regarded as great by anyone How could utter service be greatness? Well, how could the mighty Son of Man from Daniel 7, coming on the clouds to the Ancient of Days to receive universal power and authority, how could that Son of Man come to serve you, serve me? But that is what greatness is in the Kingdom of God. See, what makes Jesus the Son of Man great is not that he has glory and power and rules over all. What makes Jesus truly great is that he puts your needs ahead of his own. So Jesus identifies a variety of situations where kingdom reversal takes place. And even though the phrase is not used, the same kingdom reversal is apparent in lots of other kingdom situations, some of which I've listed there on your page. So take the next three minutes to chat to those around you or jump in on your faculty Zoom and talk about which of those kingdom reversals that I've listed on page 28, which of those 
do you think might take the world by the greatest surprise? See you in three minutes. might be looking down that list wondering why is the kingdom of God so upside down? Well the answer is it's not. It's our world that has all of its values upside down. See we esteem power and success and impressive results and performance. We aspire to comfort and self-reliance to the respect of others of having all our stuff together but we're the ones who've got it all upside down. We've called black white and turned godless ambitions into a virtue. We need to take off the worldly glasses and look instead with kingdom eyes. 
the greatest in your church is not the person up the front with the microphone. It's not the person speaking to you down the camera lens. It's the faithful servant of all who humbly gets out there to meet people in their need. The church looks weak and messy and frustrating. But get rid of those worldly glasses. Here are my precious sisters and brothers for whom Jesus, the mighty Son of Man, died to serve and save. So when you get weary serving your family or face ridicule or exclusion for your faith, or feel like you're missing out on life because you're trying to follow Jesus, those are the moments where we must remember Jesus' promise. The last will be first. Remember the kingdom reversal that God will bring about when Jesus returns. Let's move on to the third characteristic there on the page. Kingdom judgment. We've seen how the church is meant to live as an eschatological outpost of Jesus' disciples, living out this vision and value of the coming kingdom in the power of the Spirit. We've seen something of what that looks like in terms of kingdom inclusion and kingdom reversal. But I know from my own experience, as do you, that the church fails time and time again to live out this calling. In fact, at times, atrocious evil has been done within the church community. How do we make sense of the fallibility and failures of the church in the present age? Well, part of the answer that Jesus gives is that not everyone who claims to be part of God's people is actually the real deal. Some are weeds, according to Jesus, instead of wheat. That's the parable that Jesus tells in Matthew 13. The problem Jesus is addressing are those who claim to be Christian but aren't really. They don't really follow Jesus day by day. They may sit in church, attend Bible study, but they've never really heeded Jesus' kingdom call to repent and believe. In the parable, Jesus says that the weeds will remain there in the field with the wheat until the final harvest. That is, the church will always have some in it who are not really of it. And only at the final judgment, when Jesus returns, will they be separated out. Another way of saying that is that membership of the kingdom is about the heart, not mere deeds. In Matthew chapter 7, 21 to 23, Jesus has this warning. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. These people have no genuine faith relationship with Jesus. They're doing all sorts of evil against God's will, yet they're active in ministry in Jesus' name. It does remind me of horrific stories from the Royal Commission into institutional child abuse here in Australia. Membership of the kingdom is about having a repentant heart of genuine faith in Jesus. It's not about whatever you might do in his name. But if you do have a heart of genuine faith, point C on the page, it will be seen in your deeds and obedience to God. You can't have genuine faith without it showing itself in action. In particular, as God's kingdom people, we're to be his worshipful image bearers. 
We're to show the world what He is like in the way we treat others, which is why several times Jesus uses the phrase, the measure you use is the measure you'll receive. In Luke 6, we're encouraged that if we reflect God's kindness and generosity and forgiveness in our dealings with others, as He calls us to, then that will reflect a heart that is seeking to follow Jesus in repentance and faith. Alternatively, if you persist in judging and condemning others, in showing no forgiveness, that's an indicator of a heart hardened towards God. And you're in danger of being condemned by Him. The parable of the unmerciful servant in Matthew 18 makes the same point. Considering how much our Heavenly Father has forgiven us, how dare we refuse to show forgiveness to those who wrong us? Now, when talking about forgiveness, I know that touches on painful situations for different people. When we've been badly wronged, or we've seen people we care about badly wronged, forgiveness can seem a bridge too far, a sheer impossibility. Well, three comments on that. First, forgiveness matters. We need to take Jesus' warning seriously. Listen to what Jesus says at the end of the parable, after the king in the parable punishes the servant who refused to show forgiveness to others. Jesus' comment is, So also my heavenly Father will do to you, unless every one of you forgives his brother or sister from your heart. Holding on to unforgiveness puts you in a genuinely perilous place before God since he's shown you great mercy in Jesus. Second, we need to be clear what forgiveness is and what it is not. Forgiveness means not holding a grudge, not holding onto it against someone. But forgiveness does not mean acting as if it had never happened. In the light of how someone has sinned, particularly a serious sin, we move forward in wisdom. It, it might change some of the decisions we make in our interactions with them. It might change some of the situations in which we put ourselves or we, in which we allow them to place themselves. That's not a lack of forgiveness. And it should never be used as a weapon to force those wronged to put themselves in a vulnerable position. But forgiveness does mean we bear them no ill will. It means we let go of revenge and payback. We pray for their repentance. Third comment on forgiveness. Forgiveness is possible. It's possible because you know that God will ensure justice is served. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. Forgiveness is possible because the same spirit with which Jesus prayed for the forgiveness of those crucifying him is now living in you. Forgiveness is not beyond you. And it's possible because God can enlarge your vision of just how much mercy and forgiveness he's shown you in Jesus. If that's raised some significant hurts for you, or maybe something you need to repent of, then make sure you speak to somebody and pray about it. There'll be EU staff who will be available to pray for you at the end of this session.
But it's not just forgiveness that God asks of us. In the parable of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25, Jesus makes clear that genuine faith must show itself in compassion and hospitality to other believers in need. Now, the shocking reality in this parable is that Jesus says, whatever you do or don't do for any of your Christian brothers and sisters, that's what you do or don't do for Jesus. When we don't share with sisters and brothers in need, we're not being generous to Jesus. When we ignore fellow disciples when they're shut in or sick, then we've done so to Jesus. Jesus is making a very clear point. A lack of love, a lack of obedience to God and how we treat others, a failure to be a worshipful image bearer, that reveals a hardened heart not a heart of faith. So to bring this section on kingdom judgment to a close, jump down to point E at the bottom of the page. The take-home message from this whole section of kingdom judgment is this. As God's eschatological outpost, living out the vision and values of Jesus' coming kingdom in the power of the Spirit, we treat holiness and therefore sin seriously. We treat it seriously in ourselves, first of all. In Mark 9, Jesus says, if your hand or your eye causes you to sin, better to cut it off or gouge it out than have it exclude you from the kingdom of God. Of course, the real problem isn't your hand or your eye, it's your heart. But that's what God gives you a new heart through the power of his spirit in the kingdom. But we also treat sin seriously in one another. If you love me and I love you, then of course we're concerned that both of us put to death sin in our lives. Now, that does not mean just bowling up to somebody at church or in the EU and letting rip with some stern rebuke. The New Testament gives some very clear and loving ways to address sin in one another. It starts with taking the log out of your own eye before addressing the speck in someone else's, as Jesus tells us in Matthew 7. And in Matthew 18, Jesus gives a whole process for addressing sin when another member of God's people sins against you. It involves an escalating series of steps to encourage your sister or brother to acknowledge and repent from the wrong they've done. We don't go straight to social media with our complaints. We don't even go straight to the church. We address sin with one another with both appropriate discretion and appropriate directness. If we lose either of those, we're less than the kingdom people God calls us to be. It's possible, even maybe likely, that talking about sin has brought some difficult situations to mind for you. Maybe sin in your own life. Maybe sin in God's community that you know about. Take it seriously. Pray about it. We're God's holy people, his kingdom people. So don't let sin fester. Pray about it, confess the log in your own eye and pray for wisdom and a gentle spirit as you address it in others. Well, the fourth characteristic of the kingdom is a bit different. It's kingdom preciousness. As God's kingdom people, we recognise that what he has given us in his kingdom is incredibly, wonderfully valuable. Jesus captures the preciousness of the kingdom 
in two tiny one-sentence parables, which Matthew records for us in Matthew 13, verses 44 and 45. Let me read them for you. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure, Jesus says, buried in a field that a man found and reburied. Then in his joy, he goes and sells everything he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. When he found one priceless pearl, he went and sold everything he had and bought it. Time to chat to each other again. Take three minutes to discuss with those around you what makes the kingdom of God so precious? See what you can come up with and we'll be back in three minutes for our final bit of tonight's talk.
Jesus' point is that the kingdom of God is so good. If you understand how good it is, you would gladly give up everything else to have it. And you would do so out of pure joy. What are we talking about here? Well, we're talking about everything that we've seen over the last three talks about the kingdom of God. We're talking about the victory that Jesus has won for us over sin and death and the devil. We're talking about the justice that Jesus has established in his own death for sin and his resurrection for life so that we can be forgiven and free. We're talking about the inheritance that Jesus gives us of his very self so that his death is ours, his life is ours, his reign is ours, his spirit is ours. We're talking about the privilege of being part of God's kingdom people now, heirs of the kingdom and the glories to come. When you find all of that in amazement and joy, you give up everything for it. Maybe you still feel that joy, that preciousness. I hope so. Or maybe with the passage of years, that pearl, it's looking a bit dusty. As responsibilities rise and life gets complicated, the kingdom doesn't feel like an exciting discovery anymore. What can we do to recapture the joy and the sense of preciousness? Well, here's a simple idea. Write down this sentence. Because I am part of God's kingdom, I know... And see how many ways you can finish that sentence. Make a really big list. Maybe that simple exercise might remind you of the preciousness of the kingdom. And then reread Jesus' two parables of the treasure and the pearl. And as you ponder them, see if that doesn't spark some thanks, some joy towards God in your soul. Which brings us to the final characteristic, kingdom priority. We're all consumed with so many things. Study, work, relationships, family, making enough money to make ends meet. And frankly, we're consumed with a lot of other not-quite-so-essential things too. Netflix, Stan, gaming, TikTok, Instagram, going to the gym, planning the next holiday, renovating the house. It was interesting during coronavirus lockdown when people had all this extra time to see how people used it, mostly for baking sourdough, as it turns out. We have such full lives that Jesus' exhortation here is quite confronting. Seek first your Father's kingdom. Now, when Jesus says this in Luke 12, he's not saying it as a rebuke. He says it to his disciples to free them from worrying about their material needs. He says in Luke chapter 12, verse 29, Don't strive for what you should eat and what you should drink, and don't be anxious. For the nations of the world eagerly seek all these things. Your Father knows that you need them. But seek His kingdom, and these things will be provided for you. Don't be afraid, little flock, because your Father delights to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. 
Make money bags for yourselves that won't grow old, an inexhaustible treasure in heaven, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's pretty radical kingdom living right there. Don't be worried about your future basic material needs. Your heavenly Father knows you need food to eat and clothes on your back. So seek his kingdom and these other things will be given to you. And if that sounds a bit risky, a bit scary, Jesus says, don't be afraid. Your father is going to give you the kingdom. So sell the possessions that you have and give those to the needy, to the poor. That way you'll be storing up treasure in heaven. And if you want a super clear diagnostic, Jesus gives you one. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Hmm. Well, where is your treasure? Is it here? Or is it there? Where are you storing up your treasure? That's where your heart is. And it's not just that God's kingdom takes priority over material concerns. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus makes clear that the kingdom of God takes priority even over family ties. These two areas of financial security and family ties, they really hit home for us, just as they did in Jesus' day. What's it going to look like for you and me to embrace real kingdom priority? Will you leave the dead to bury their own dead, as Jesus said in Luke 9.60, so that you can go and share the good news of the kingdom? Will you sell your possessions to give to the needy? Why is the kingdom such a priority? Because it's so precious. It's the way life is meant to be lived. It's the only place where there's eternal life and forgiveness and resurrection and salvation from God's wrath. It's the only place where there's a secure hope that there is something better. And as those who will inherit that kingdom, we're to live out the priority of the kingdom now. For a number of years, the EU has had a particular passion to see God's kingdom grow around the world amongst those who are less reached and less resourced with the gospel, the LRLR. It might be an area where there aren't many Christians here or overseas, or it might be a place where the church is low on resources, where there's not many people who are able to teach God's word or disciple other believers. So here's one way you could live out kingdom priority. Resolve to do something at cost to yourself to help the less reached and less resourced with the gospel. It might mean making a radical kingdom decision about where you're going to live. Choose an LRLR church in which you can fruitfully serve. Work out how you could live in that same area and then find a job that's within a reasonable distance. That would be one way of seeking first God's kingdom. Or maybe you're not in a position to do something like that, but you could support someone who is, maybe with your prayers, with your finances, with relational support. This is us working in God's kingdom project together with the needs of the whole world in mind. I'd encourage you, if you haven't already, to consider making 
the LRLR pledge. It's just one way of giving expression to the priority of God's kingdom in your life. This is what it says. I commit for the next five years to prayerfully consider going to serve the LRLR in cross-cultural Sydney, the rest of Australia or overseas. And I commit to doing something in the next 12 months to serve the LRLR with the gospel. If you've heard a bit about the less reached and less resourced and convinced that it would be one way you could live out serving Jesus with kingdom priority, then I'd encourage you to make the pledge. It commits you to doing something to support the LRLR in the next 12 months, but that might not be very much. But it also commits you to prayerfully consider over the next five years moving to an LRLR area. And you can make that pledge by going to the EU website, sueu.org.au slash LRLR. Wouldn't it be a marvellous demonstration to the world of the preciousness and the priority of the kingdom in our lives if out of the EU at Sydney Uni we saw a, a flood of people to the less reached and the less resourced places around God's globe that we might bring the gospel to those places? But the challenge for all of us, as we seek to be God's eschatological outpost, is to live out the priority of the kingdom in each of our situations, each day. That may mean taking a risk and being open about your faith at work or at uni. It may mean reconsidering how you use your finances and where you're storing your treasure. It may mean re-evaluating your sense of family obligation and what it looks like to honour Jesus, the King, in your family. Well, we've covered a lot of ground tonight. I hope it has refuelled your tank to live out the vision and values of Jesus' kingdom together as his eschatological outpost. If we embrace kingdom inclusion, kingdom reversal, kingdom judgment, kingdom preciousness and kingdom priority, not only will we stand out as signposts in a world that desperately needs the hope of God's kingdom, but will be the kingdom people he's created us to be in Jesus, to his glory and praise.